Hey, everybody, welcome to the Anything But Typical podcast featuring another Anything But Typical entrepreneur. And you're in for a treat because I know a bit of his story, but I know that I'm going to even learn more. And the story that I know is very interesting. He may not think it's that interesting, but I found it fascinating. And so uh, Brent Holderman, of a number of companies that he has started, um, he, he's a hopeless, like, he can't help himself in uh, starting companies. Like, he's a, you know, what do they call it, a, a career entre- entrepreneur, something like that. Um, but I think that's what you are. So anyway, we'll get into your story. Um, when you and I first met, I had no idea. <laughs> I saw, I saw the absolute recovery logo on your polo. And I said, man, that seems familiar. And, uh, and he goes, I, 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 and I said, I know you from somewhere. And you said, no, I doubt it. <laughs> Unless I've had my car repossessed. And I had not. So we'll get into that and we'll get into other things, but Brent loves to play golf and um, his email proves it. So here's the, here's the scenario, Brent. All right. Even though Firethorn is your home course, you're actually you're rolling into your dream course, Pebble Beach. And for some reason, there are people in the parking lot as you're getting your your bags out, getting ready to do it at the bag drop, they recognize you. Hopefully it wasn't that they had their car repossessed and their Jaguar or whatever, but they recognize you and they're talking about you. But they don't realize that the sound is carrying as far as it does and that you're able to hear everything that they said. What would you want somebody to be saying about you, Brent? So, you know, I, I listen to some of your other podcasts and everybody always says, you know, a lot of the same answers, the, you know, when people say I'm a good person and I'm honest and I'm nice and all that stuff. But what I think, uh, I think would probably make me um, maybe most proud would be that, that uh, people would say something, something along the lines of, uh, here's a guy who just, uh, you know, with, with no silver spoon or leg up on the world, uh, no education, um, you know, decided to take a chance and um, pursue being self-employed and, and, you know, left a, left a a really good paying job to uh, take a crack at, at a different life. And, uh, you know, not only, not only, you know, had the stones to to try it, but, but it made it work and, and, uh, and be successful at it. Well, you got both. <laughs> You've done it. <laughs> and we'll get into that story. And it's really cool. And it's going to be inspiring to a lot of people out there, I think, that have wondered, one, wonder if I should, you know, what, what would happen if, et cetera. So we want to unpack that story of yours. So Ben, go ahead and take the next piece. Yep. All right. So Brent is the owner of Absolute Recovery, Pitbull Keys, and Blue Frogware. And like Gary alluded to earlier, there's there's a list of other other projects and things that have gone on throughout the years, so we're going to dive into all that. But I want, Brent, I want us to start with just giving the listeners an idea of what Absolute Recovery is, 
and then we can go into uh, how you started absolute recovery and things like that. So can you start with what absolute recovery is? Uh, basically we're a repossession company. Um, so we, we do, um, repossession work for different banks and finance companies, uh, when people haven't paid for their collateral or, uh, you know, maybe their insurance has lapsed or whatever, but, but typically we're just, um, enforcing the, the, uh, contract that the bank has, um, with the customer, uh, when they don't fulfill their end of the, uh, contract and they ask us to go get the collateral. So we, we do that for the bank. And you've, you've been running this for, for years, right? Owning and running it for years. Paint the picture for what were you doing prior to starting Absolute? Uh, I, was, um, I was a mortgage guy. Um, I did, uh, started off as a, as a loan officer. Um, and then I went into uh, the, uh, the big bad world of uh, wholesale subprime mortgages um, back in 2003-ish um, till I left that in 2008. Um, so I was in that, that subprime mortgage world that, uh, we all know about. You know, it's interesting that you're in that because another guest that we had on the typical podcast, uh, Rob Maynard actually worked for Jamie Diamond in that same thing a, a long time ago. And he got out before the crash so I think that's kind of interesting, too. And he's gone on and done some amazing things with uh, Famous Toastery and other entrepreneurial endeavors that he has, he has done. So, and, and the other thing that's interesting is both of you guys have very similar kind of backgrounds. Not a lot of formal education, but, you know, high on drive, lots of, um, you know, fire in the belly. And, you know, so... Talk with us a little bit about that transition. So we all know what happened in 08, 09, right? And um, I'm assuming that hit you. So talk to us about what happened and, and what got you into this. Sure. Well, I think, uh, so, I, um, I, so I've always been, uh, for a long time, been kind of a, uh, news junkie, politics, world events, watching what's going on in the world. And, uh, you know, as, as, un, as 2008 started to unfold, um, you know, it was pretty obvious that things were uh, headed down a, a bad path. I don't know that anybody knew how bad it was going to be, but, uh, you know, that things were definitely um, getting worse or, or gonna, there's going to be some struggles. And in, in my business in the wholesale subprime world, uh, our company was, lucky enough to get bought by a large, a very large company, Barclays with a lot of, a lot of money. Um, so we had good backing. So uh, we were able to survive as a company longer than, than most, but we we're, you know, watching our competitors go out of business and fold up, fold up shop. And so the writing was on the wall that it was only a matter of time until, um, you know, I needed to work on a, on a next uh, plan B or whatever. So I, um, knowing that they're, or, or expecting that the, the economy is going to take a turn, everything is going to go into a recession. Um, you know, my thought was just what's going to do well in, in a bad economy and something in, in repossessions or foreclosures was what made sense to me. Uh, i had been doing the housing thing, the mortgage thing for a while, and I didn't really want to jump into foreclosures. Um, so I, I did a little bit of research on repossession industry. I, uh, 
inquired to a couple of people about trucks for sale, had never driven a tow truck. Um, uh, met a guy who had a truck for sale in Atlanta. And I asked him, I said, Hey, can I come down and look at your truck and ride along with you for a couple of days and, uh, you know, get it, see what it's like. And so I went down there and, and spent a couple nights out on the road with him. I ended up not buying his truck, bought another truck. And, uh, for about uh, a month or so, I tried to do the, do the mortgage thing and the repossession thing at night, uh, burning the candle at both ends, uh, no sleep. And, uh, my daughter was, uh, let's see about, uh, 11 at the time. And we had just gotten full custody of her, uh, my, my, my second wife and I. And so, uh, not a lot of room for sleep there. And I quickly realized that I had to make a, a decision one way or another. And, um, I decided to jump in with both feet and, and try to make the repossession game work. And I, uh, was my only employee for a long time and, and, uh, learned a lot of hard lessons, but, you know, obviously it, it, it's, it's worked out to this point. You know, I, I think that's really wise what you did. I mean, first of all, you didn't wait until you got a pink slip. You saw trends, you were paying attention, and then you proactively thought, okay, if things do go bad, what's an industry that's going to be going to make it? And what do you want to do and what don't you want to do? And the fact that you hadn't driven a tow truck before, but you did the, some research and you said, I want to experience it versus, Hey, I'm just going to imagine, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think there's probably one idea of like, Oh, I think this is what it's going to be like, but it's probably another thing when you're in the passenger seat of a, a, a tow truck for the first time and you're experiencing like, what's this like when you're rolling up to an apartment complex or you pulling up at a parking lot and you're doing a, you know, get underneath the thing and take off kind of thing. Like, you know, what, like when you went through that, what were some of the aha moments, like good as well as, oh crap, what am I going to get myself into here? Well, I mean, there's an incredible adrenaline rush, especially in the beginning. I've been, I'm in my 14th year now. Uh, So some of that adrenaline rush is gone. Um, you know, it's kind of just what I do. Um, but, but in those beginning times, for sure, a huge adrenaline rush, uh, you know, I've never, I've never skydived or anything like that, but I imagine it's, it's a lot of the same feelings, um, cause there's so much uncertainty and, you know, uh, you know, you mentioned like pulling into a parking lot or an apartment complex or something like that. That's really not the, you know, those are still an adrenaline rush, but the ones where you're, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning and you're backing your truck down somebody's driveway and pulling around behind the house to grab the car that they're hiding behind the house. Um, you know, that's, that's where the adrenaline rush really comes in. Uh, Cause you don't know if people are going to wake up, if they're going to be nice, if they're going to be uh, violent, you just don't know. And, and your job is to get out of there as quickly as possible and, and safe. Uh, as far as, you know, aha moments, uh, uh, man, it was a lot harder to work than I thought it was going to be a lot more hours than I thought it was going to be. Uh, you know, definitely times where I considered going back or, or throwing in the towel and, um, you know, what have I, what have I done? You know, I could be, you know, if it's pouring down rain or it's cold or it's summertime and it's, and it's 97 degrees and I'm, and I'm burning up, I'm like, man, I could be in a cubicle and the air conditioning and, 
yeah, with uh with with much much less stress but uh yeah i don't know so when you decided all right you did your ride along for a couple of days which i think is really wise i mean you're you're beta testing you're you're testing does this fit me or not? Because there are a lot of things that people can do. There are a lot of things people think that they'll be good at and what they think that they will like versus what the reality of the job is. They're two different things, you know, right? Sure. So, uh, and I can imagine the adrenaline rush because, <clears throat> you know, I've not ever had a car repossessed, but I've had a car that was towed at the University of Kentucky when my son in his apartment complex was taking a shower, literally 10 minutes he was in taking a shower and somebody yanked my Explorer out of that parking lot and I wasn't real happy about it. (laughs) So I can only imagine if somebody's been ditching on their payments and then all of a sudden you've taken their their ride, people aren't going to be really excited about that in a good way. They may be excited, but, you know, I would imagine, I mean, you've seen some dramatic times or possibly near to, you know, have you, have you experienced somebody, you know, pulling a gun on you or anything like that? Have you experienced anything crazy like that? Um, yeah, I have. Um, we, for the most part, you know, let me dispel the 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 thoughts on the like the the tv shows that are out there we we try to do things we it's it's really the exact opposite of what you see on tv everything on the the tv repo shows is all staged or embellished or whatever um but but yeah there's there's definitely danger there's there have been physical confrontations there have been um guns pulled uh just just about a year ago I had one of my drivers um and i have the had the video from the truck on it where uh he pulled a vehicle out he was a half mile away putting putting the, the the straps on to keep it safely secured to the truck and uh guy pulls up in another car and puts an ar-15 in his face and walks him back to the truck and makes him drop the car which you know we did and, and the guy took his vehicle um but uh you know that happened I, one of my previous trucks had a bullet hole in the hood uh again i wasn't the one driving but one of my one of my guys got shot at um you know so it there's definitely some danger in the in the job and there's you know unfortunately there are there are people who die every year doing this job um but it's uh you know it's a it's a necessary job that has to be done so i mean there there are parts of that that are mind blowing for me but whether here, here's the point that I think everybody, regardless of what industry they have expertise in or that they're thinking of jumping in or they're already starting, <clears throat> you know, everybody has um, a thought of this is the way it's going to be. And then they get into it and they find that they have created a 24 seven job for themselves. They didn't create a business. They found a job for themselves. And it feels like, you know, what the heck did I just do? And you alluded to that a little bit, but I know that you've transitioned dramatically from that. So 
walk the listeners through that part of the journey where, oh my gosh, I'm working 24-7. I'm a slave to this thing called my business. What happened, you know, in that journey to where, you know, if the last time that you and I actually talked about it, you were actually working about 10 hours a week in your, your business and you were playing golf and doing other stuff that has created an amazing amount of freedom for you, which is really cool. That's the dream life that so many people have, but very few actually are able to transition from I'm a slave to my own company to I've got a balcony view of it where I can work on it, but not in it. So walk us through that. Sure. So first thing I would say is, is the, if I could, if I could go back in time to when I started and tell, talk to myself, I would, I would most definitely, the advice I would give myself is get out of the truck as soon as possible, build this into a company that works for me. And, and it's not just me. Um, I've always been in business and, and jobs that I've had. I've always been a little bit of a control freak um, in that I feel like I have to be touching everything. And, and so to give, give away to, to trust somebody else, another employee or an assistant or a, uh, another department at a job to do what needs to be done was always a concern for me. I always felt like I needed to be the one um, pushing things along to make sure that they're getting done right. Um, and so it was even worse being self-employed. Uh, the thought of sending an, an employee out in my only truck and uh, knowing that they're, you know, believing that they're going to do things the right way, um, you know, the way that I would handle things um, was incredibly scary, but you have to, uh, you have to be able to let go of those reins. You have to be able to delegate and, and trust that you've hired the right people and, and taught them the right way and that they're going to do what, um, you know, what they're supposed to do. Um, what, what really changed my, my, my life in this, in from, from going from working 18, 20 hours a day, you know, six days a week, um, was one that's only sustainable for so long, you know, who, no matter who you are, you can't, you can't just give that much, um, before you're going to burn out at some point. Um, but, uh, a book that I'm sure many people who watch this, uh, have read and, and probably subscribed to some of the, the ideas in there is four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Um, it's, it's my, I guess my all-time favorite as far as, uh, you know, I still go back and reference and read, read parts of the book, but, um, you know, the, the thought of working four hours a week and still being able to, or, you know, be able to take the rest of your time and enjoy your life um, is great. And that's been a goal of mine. And, and when we did talk before, I was down to about 10 hours a week and, and I was still pushing for the four, but I was, but I was down to about 10. Um, it, good and bad right now we're, we're, we're slam busy. The, the, for, for all the good things that are um, hypothetically happening in the economy, there are a lot of uh, repossessions happening again, um, better than ever. So uh, I actually have jumped back in a little bit. I'm putting in more hours than I'd like to right now, but uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I realized that in order to enjoy life and, and do some of the things that I wanted to do, I had to be able to hire the right people, trust that they're going to do what they're, they need to do and uh, be able to step away. And uh, it's hard to do. It really is. 
so that is a challenge for everybody, right? And especially early on. So you've spent, I mean, a tow truck is not an inexpensive, you know, piece of equipment. Um, you know, you've, you were transitioning, you know, you probably didn't have, well, you weren't a silver spoon guy. You're not a silver spoon guy. So, um, you know, it's one thing to entrust, you know, an expensive piece of equipment to somebody that you just inherited or whatever, but when you've blood, sweat and tears and you're still paying on it, and then you allow somebody else and you entrust them to do it, you admitted that you're a, a bit of a control freak which I think is interesting because a control freak to be able to run a few companies. And at the time when you were doing 10 hours a week in the business, you know, and the rest you were doing what, what you wanted to do, that's a pretty dramatic shift. And you also mentioned, um, you know, training, like hiring the right people, but then training them properly. And I think those two things are challenges for a lot of people both of those things, hiring the right people. A lot of times people can do that, but then they still don't give them the reins and then they micromanage them. And before they know it, they're gone because good people don't want to be micromanaged. Talk to us a a bit about those early hires in particular. What were the things that you were looking for? The qualities, you know, this isn't brain surgery necessarily because, you know, you've got to have somebody that's a, you know, neurosurgeon and you've got all, you know, decades of years, but that's, that's a little bit different. It's not to diminish what is needed in this role, but, you know, you've got a, a broader pool of candidates that you can look at than a brain surgeon necessarily. What are the things that you looked for and how did you get to the training part where you feel like uh, you felt like, all right, I can, I, I'm, I'm just going to trust, even though I know I've got kind of a control bent. Uh, I don't know that I knew what I was looking for. Uh, matter of fact, my, my very first hire, uh, I wasn't looking for, uh, he was actually driving around with his family in this, in the van saw me pull in with a, a car on the, on the tow truck, followed me into my, my storage facility and said, Hey, do you ever need help? I'd love to learn to do what you do. And, uh, I ended up taking his number and just, you know, when I, I was extra busy and I need a little bit of help, I, I called him and turned into being, a uh, my first employee. So I wasn't even looking for him or, uh, or knew what I was looking for or what, what skills, but, uh, you know, in my, in my business, the biggest thing you have to have a, um, a cool head. You have to be able to, uh, interact with people in a, in a stressful situation. You don't know what's going on in these people's lives. Uh, you know, some people just, you know, priorities, they don't, or, or they have no intention of paying ever. Most people are just down on their luck and they're, they're in a bad place. They maybe lost their job. Maybe their kid's sick. Maybe their mom just died. You don't know. And so you don't know what their frame of mind is. And so you have to treat people with a, a level head and you have to be uh, able to, you know, empathize, but still do your job. Um, you know, and, and then for those people that are violent or, or want to, uh, uh, do whatever they have to do to get their car back, you have to be, uh, not physical because we don't, we're not going to fight anybody over a car, you know, but, um, but, but you have to be confident and, um, 
you know, show your, I guess confidence is the best word that, that you're doing what you're supposed to do and that they can't bully you or push you around. Yeah, that's good. I, that's pretty interesting too. The fact that somebody found you, um, that shows initiative, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so how did you go from, wow, okay, so this guy shows initiative. Um, you give him a whirl. Talk about lessons learned along the way, whether it was with that person or along the way, since you've been doing this for 14 years. Um you've probably learned some lessons along the way for the kinds of qualities that you're looking for, but also things that you got to make sure are on the checklist of making sure that they've been trained properly and that they've shown aptitude to be able to continue to do that. Uh, I mean, I guess the, the main things would be that uh, again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential danger in this industry. And then there's also, um, you know, being able to drive defensively because you're, you're driving a a 10,000 pound tow truck while towing a a five or 6,000, potentially a five or 6,000 pound vehicle. You know, that's a lot of weight and you have to, you know, know how to not tailgate and plan ahead and change your lanes properly and stuff like that. So, so, you know, we have a lot of responsibility because if you, if, if you hit a car in a, in a vehicle like that, you could, you could kill somebody. And, and so, you know, somebody who's um, safe and aware of their surroundings and uh, you know, thinks about genuinely cares what they're, what they're doing, not just going through the motions, I guess would be uh, you know, things that are important from a, from a driver standpoint. Um, and then, you know, the, there's actually a lot of paperwork in our, in our business. So that, you know, that comes down to just the office staff being detail oriented, um, you know, making things sure things are properly filled out, invoiced properly, stuff like that, you know, and again, know how to deal with people because people come in and they're to collect their belongings or get their car back and they're still not happy with us. So they, they may want to yell and scream and um, you know, fight when they get here. So we gotta, you know, just, you gotta make sure that you are, are, set up properly to uh, to deal with that. Yeah, I think it's helpful. Um, okay, so you started hiring people in absolute recovery, started getting out of the business, so you weren't in the truck 18 to 20 hours a day, six days a week. Um, talk to us about Pitbull Keys which seems to be kind of a natural extension, but what that is, when, when you did it, what drew you into that? And then like, I remember you talking about blue frog, <laughs> but, but it hadn't been launched yet. So I want to hear, I want to hear that story too. So, you know, take us into Pitbull keys and then blue frog. Well, so Pitbull keys was just a natural, uh, extension of the to the to my repossession business um you know most of the cars that we pick up we we pick them up day and night but if you're doing it right you're you're you get the car and you're gone before they realize you're there uh so in that situation we're not gathering keys for these cars uh 
you know, if the car is going to go to auction or, or the, the bank is going to sell the car, they have to have a key. Uh, you got to know if it runs, obviously, or, or be able to have a key to gain access to the to the car and the trunk and the property that's in there and whatever. So, um, you know, as as an add on service, kind of to the to the banks, um, we started making keys for vehicles. Uh, so I initially started doing that just through my repossession company, um, and then that transitioned into actually starting a whole separate company um, with with separate employees, separate tax ID, and all that. Um, and then we service some local dealerships and car lots and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, so I got, we got licensed myself and, and one of my other employees are licensed locksmiths and, uh, we yeah, make keys for, for a lot of the cars that we pick up for the banks. As far as, uh, how long did it, how long did it take you from the time that you started absolute to where you saw this was a natural extension of that company that dovetailed? Let's say it was a, probably around year seven or so. So, so I definitely should have done it sooner, but, but there's a decent amount of skill and, uh, and cost involved with starting that. So uh, I don't know that I could have done it much earlier than that, but, but it was about seven years, I'd say. So, You've been into this for 14 years. Think back to subprime lending before it started blowing up. Did you ever have thoughts of starting a company or running a company or buying a company, you know, as you were growing up or even in corporate America? I don't think I did. Uh, so I always knew. Um, I always knew I wanted to be successful. Didn't know how I was going to get there. Um, you know, I, I like, I like nice things. I like I'm, I'm a car guy for sure. Um, you know, so I guess a long time ago working in sales, I can remember working with it, with a guy and telling him that I wanted to retire at 40 and I'm probably 21 at the time. And, you know, everybody just kind of laughed at me and, um, you know, it was a pipe dream and all that. Uh, I didn't make it at 40 um, and I'm, I'm almost 45 and I still haven't made it, but, but I definitely feel like I'm on my way. Um, but as far as being self-employed, I guess somewhere in there, I probably did realize um, that, that the only way to get where I wanted to be really is to be self-employed. You know, I can remember reading rich dad, poor dad when I was young and, you know, millionaire next door and some of those different books that you read, um, you know, and, and the common theme is that those people, don't typically work for other people. And then I looked into the mortgage business and, and the money was great, especially for somebody who's uneducated. I was making, you know, more money than the average doctor. I mean, in all honesty, you know, maybe not, you know, not brain surgeons, but just your average run of the mill doctor. I was able to make more than they did with, with barely a high school education. Um, and so, and so that was pretty cool. Um, but then as much as I, I I wanted it to last forever, um, you know, I'm glad it didn't. I'm glad it, it uh, the the business taking a turn forced my hand to to do something different, and and that's um, something that is probably a, a real blessing. And that uh, I think a lot of people just kind of get stuck in a at a job or a career that they don't. Um, it's hard to leave. Um, you know, I, I could have stayed in the business and and been just fine all these years, but. Um, and a lot of my buddies are still doing the same thing. 
it's just, uh, I'm, but I'm glad I, I made the transition and, and I don't see myself really ever working for anybody again, I hope. So you mentioned something that I want to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole. You, you talked about wanting to be successful. Well, everybody defines that a little bit differently. And you mentioned the goal of retiring at 40, but what does, what does success look like in your life? How do you define that for yourself? Uh, to me, it's, to me, success is, um, it's, it's not just about money by any means. I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that just, just having a bunch of zeros in the bank account makes you successful necessarily. I think that you gotta, you know, obviously it, money allows you to live, a, to do the things that you want to do. Um, so you, there does take a certain amount of, of money to, to, to be successful, but, you know, to have a life that you enjoy, um, you know, whether that's, whether that's traveling or, or just, uh, you know, some, for some people that's just spending time on the couch with the kids. Uh, some people that's traveling the world, some people that's, uh, you know, volunteer doing volunteer work or, or going on, you know, mission trips or, or whatever. I think that, I think that success to me just means you're doing whatever you want to do and with your life, you know, you're not, you don't wake up every morning and, and dread what you're doing or uh, hate what you're doing. I, I listened to a guy recently and he made a, he, he one little nugget of um, something he said was, uh, you know, people always say they're looking forward to Friday and, uh, you know, I can't wait for the weekend. He's like, well, what do you, what about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and, and Friday during the day at work, you know, you know, what about those days? Um, you know, if you, if you're living your life to wait for the weekend, then, then you really probably hate your life. So if, if you're not doing what you want to do, you know, on a daily basis, or at least more often than just two days a week, I, th- I think that that's, I guess, I guess in my world, that that means to me, that's success is being able to do what you want to do. And how has that evolved over the years of going from, from your career into starting your own business as that has grown and other businesses have come and gone? How, how have you been able to shape your life to be able to focus on those priorities, the things that, that you value the most? Um, you know, I, I, I think that it doesn't just happen. You have to, you have to set yourself up for that. You have to, um, you know, identify what, what it's going to take to get you there, get you, get you the time, the free time that you, that you want, that you need to, to, to do those things that you enjoy. Um, and so, you know, those things didn't happen overnight, but, but by, but by me deciding that, Hey, the only way I'm ever going to have the time that I want to have, I'm going to have to get out of the office or I'm going to get out of the tow truck. Um, and in order to um, do that, you know, I had to kind of make a plan. I, I, I'm going to need a couple of people to do these different things. And then I'm going to have to have, um, you know, processes in place and, um, you know, whether it's softwares or it's, you know, whatever things to, to kind of manage the business so that I can step away. Otherwise uh, I'm never going to get there. Here's another little observation if you if you think back of all of the guests that we've had, Ben, they pretty much every one of them have referenced books, learning. And I can't think of anybody that really referenced, oh, well, you know, this was my education and all my formal education and all my accolades mm-hmm. in education. I can't think of anybody that's really 
<laughs> reference no, that. And we've, and we've had, had people that have we've had all spectrums, multiple right? degrees. People with PhDs, people with high school dropouts right. and everywhere in between. And you're right. The, the most valuable growth and learning, nobody has referenced the actual formal education part, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I just think that's really interesting. The other thing that I would love, and, and this is this is going to be kind of a vulnerable question, um, but and so if you if you say I can't answer that, then that's okay. You get a pass. But my question is: is have you ever struggled with this thing that they call imposter syndrome, which is, man, if people just knew, you know, I mean, you you kind of laid it out there quickly. Hey, I didn't have bunch of formal education, blah, 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 blah. But have you ever struggled at times with that? And if so, have you found, what have you found to free yourself from that phenomenon? So to to make sure I understand the question, you're saying, um, meaning you say imposter syndrome, like, like, Maybe I don't deserve to be where I'm at. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Or if people really knew, I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing. You know, that, that <laughs> sense of imposter syndrome of like, man, if they just knew that they think that, yeah, they see me drive around my Corvette. They, they see me do this or that. But if they knew that, you know, I'm still making it up as I go, you know, I, I don't know anything about this or that. Like, and a lot of times I find it with people on the finance side of the business. Man, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I, we were with a very successful commercial real estate guy today that understands this business. He's very successful, but he's like, man, I don't, I don't get this or that on the balance sheet. I don't get this or that on the financial statements. And like, I don't know what's going on there. Well, interesting. I mean, you know, wow. Everybody from the outside would go, that guy's got it all together. And then he's like, I don't know what I'm doing. That's what I'm getting at with imposter syndrome. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I funny, you, you said something about not, not knowing what you're doing. Um, one of my old bosses used to say, uh, one of his sayings was fake it till you make it. Um, but as far as like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm constantly learning. I'm not, a, I, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a smart guy as far as, you know, I, I have no idea what my IQ is or whatever, but, you know, I'm not the guy you want on your trivia team at the, at the bar. Um, you know, but I think that, I think that just hard work and, and, um, you know, being willing to take some chances trumps all that. What I've found here's, here's kind of the, the thing that I've observed across very, very extremely successful people that inwardly were going, man, I, you know, people just knew that I don't know what I'm doing, but what I've seen, and you've done this, you've already demonstrated it today. The fastest way to free yourself from that is to admit, I don't know what I'm doing and that's okay. But when you're masquerading, like I've got it all together and you're masquerading to be somebody that you're not, then, then the, the imposter syndrome actually has you in, the, in its grips. One of the things that I was so drawn to you when you and I first met and found out that, no, I, I didn't actually know your company because I, I hadn't had my 
my car repossessed. <laughs> but when we started talking, like you, you just had this authenticity about you. you, you there was a humility about you that I, re- I really liked. And, um, and I still like that about you. And, you know, so you didn't hit it at 40. Well, guess what? I'm almost 60 and I didn't hit it. I, at one point I was there and then it was gone. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, but, you know, what you've been able to do in, in going from working hard, work hard, work hard, work hard to this is killing me. I've got to be able to work smarter You've actually been able to do that where a lot of very successful people haven't figured that out yet. They've, they've still stayed as a slave on the treadmill that just keeps ramping up faster. And they're just afraid that they're going to stumble and get spit out the back end at some point. Yeah. So now, so, so Brent to well, that, to that point, uh, right. The kind of lessons learned uh, along the way, the battle scars, all of that. What are some of the other uh big takeaways that you've had? Cause you said it wasn't entrepreneurship. Wasn't this thing as a little kid that you thought you were going to do, but you got to that point and have obviously been able to, to keep going and be successful. So what are those biggest takeaways or lessons that you've learned of being a, being a business owner, being an entrepreneur? Um, well, I would say that surrounding yourself with smart people. Um, one of the, one of the great things, uh, one of the maybe a few great things of, social media uh, these days is the fact that you can con- connect with people um, all across the country very easily. So uh, in, in my world, there, there are some really, really great uh, like Facebook groups um, and some industry conferences and I've made some amazing friends, people way smarter than me, um, you know, across the country with much bigger companies. Um, and, I'm, and I've been able to learn some from lessons from them. Um, you know, people I can call for advice when I, when I need something, um, because yeah, I mean, to your point earlier, I, I'm constantly learning and I don't know the answers. And, um, you know, I think that one of the, one of those sayings that I, that I try to live by, um, you know, is the, if, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And I, and I really do believe that I, I can learn from everybody, um, in every, in every situation, there's somebody there probably smarter than me and more successful than me. And, and I can learn from them. Um, you know, and so surrounding yourself with good people, having good, good connections, good colleagues, or, uh, you know, I I can remember, um, before I started my, my repossession company, you know, my space was, I think still a thing and, uh, Facebook really was just coming on and I didn't have a way to to date yourself at all. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, you know, and, and so, um, I can remember calling random people in different cities and i would just say hey i'm i'm in north carolina i'm not in your market i'm not going to compete with you by any means but i'm struggling i got questions you know can do you mind spending 15 minutes talking to me and and, you know i made some some really cool connections like that um just just being able to uh so so keep smarter people in your corner um you know here's a little plug for bgw you know you talked about financials and stuff like that that is not my forte um I don't really know what I'm doing with that stuff. And, and so, you know, when, when I, when I transitioned to BGW, um, it was, it was a big help to me um, to really keep, to, to get a better grasp on my numbers and, and know that I got some smart people taking care of my stuff on the back end that I don't, I don't know how to do. 
Well, th thank you for that. Uh, that's not why you're on this program. <laughs> we always like that. So again, think about the commonality that we've, we've seen, uh, Ben, across all of these really amazing guests that we've had, that voracious learner, you know, reader, and you've referenced books, but also the humility of asking and bringing other people around you, whether it's roundtables, whether it be Facebook groups of industry groups, but there is, there's something really important about surrounding yourself with good people. And you, you put that so well, Brent, but it takes humility to do that. If you're the smartest person in the room, you, you know, and you insist on that, there's not probably a lot of humility and you can't really learn much if you, you know, are un uncoachable and unteachable. So um, I think that's, that's good. One other question along that line, if you, if you could do things over, what would you do differently and sooner or later or whatever? Like if, if there are a couple takeaways, like, man, I wish I, and, and you're, you're not a kind of guy that lives in regret. I have never seen you as that at all. But if you could wind the tape back and do something different, what would you have done differently? Uh, do you mean in life in general or in, or in my business? Either way, either way. Um, well, I alluded to it earlier. I think, I think in, from a business standpoint, I would have, uh, I wish I would have looked at it as a company uh, rather, more so than a job. I think too, too many people start a company and end up with a job. Uh, as far as in life in general, I think that, I mean, I love self-employment, uh, not every day. Uh, some days are, are not fun, but I wouldn't change it. And I, and I wish I would have, um, started it earlier. Um, I also would say that, um, when I was, when I was making really good money in the mortgage business, I wish I would have saved it. You know, I think that it's too easy to just expect that you're, you're, you know, you're going to another, another big fat commission check next month. And, and it, it was like that for years. And then all of a sudden it, it dried up. And so if you're, um, you know, not saving some money or you, or you put yourself in a position where you're spending every dollar you make, then, um, you know, and I, and I wasn't that person, but I, I sure could have saved a lot more than I did. I, I, uh, wasted a lot of bar tabs and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So, um, I, I would just, I guess I would, I would tell myself to, to be smarter with my money, uh, get to self-employment as soon as possible and build a company that, that can run without me, uh, more so than, than creating a job. Cause I, cause I did cre create a job for, for the first five plus years, no doubt. Yeah. And, and you see that a lot. So I saw my, my father was that way. He ran his own businesses, but he was, he basically created a company for him to be an employee in. And you see that a lot with solopreneurs or people that have a couple people in the company and getting past that, that hump and getting out of, I don't have a job. I have to start working on the business, not just in the business is a massive pivot or transition. So one other thing that we haven't talked about, and again, if we need to uh, cut this out, we can, but I, you know, part of your lifetime learning 
and exploring and you invent stuff like you come up with ideas and and test the market on it and this and that sometimes they turn into something sometimes they don't but um you know you, you seem to be a student also of just revenue streams so um you know i know that you and your wife who is also an entrepreneur which i think is pretty cool um that you like to travel, you like to do cool vacations together, et cetera. You know, you love your, your daughter immensely. Like you've, you made that very, very clear. Uh, and, and I think, and, and my three, three month old uh, grandson. Oh, grandson how cool. Grandson. Now I didn't even know about that. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. Uh, well, congratulations. And um, I'm, I'm also a grandfather, but I refuse to be, called a grandfather i'm papa so what what are you what's your papa yeah there you go that's we can still feel good about ourselves don't feel like we're ancient and (laughs) still (laughs) endearing (laughs) um but talk about some of the passive income like you know um what got you into doing a rental property well uh the ability to, um, you know, to, to have income while, while paying for an asset, um, was, a was a thought I've, I've had a couple of, of properties over the years. Um, and, uh, you know, the, as, as, as real estate, um, appreciates your, your, your asset should be appreciating, um, and you got, and you got somebody else making them, making the payment for you. And so as, you know, as long as you have good tenants and, you know, a good, good property, I think that it's, it's a good place to, to, uh, invest money. Um, right now I'm, I have, I finally bought my commercial property where we have our business and I'm looking for another commercial property. I, I do love the idea of, um, commercial property, even more so than, uh, residential. I think these days, um, the whole, the whole rent moratorium, uh, probably scared me away from wanting to have residential properties ever again. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that, I think that, uh, anybody who, who wants to live a certain style of life probably needs multiple streams of income. And, and I'm constantly looking for my other, for my next one. Um, you know, my wife, like you said, is, is self-employed, has a restaurant and that's, that's been 13 years and, and going strong. And, um, so, you know, I think that's important to have different ways to, uh, to make income, you know, when the pandemic hit and the restaurant closed for, for a couple of months, um, you know, it was nice to have some money coming in from different places. And so not being fully reliant on any one thing is great. Yeah, that's, that's smart. Right, so, so much sense. I'm sorry, Gary, go for it. This is another trivial type question, but it's not trivial. Cause I, I think I know why. But talk about how you got the name Pitbull Keys. Man, uh, coming up with a, a name for anything I think is incredibly difficult. Uh, different different businesses I've either either started or, or considered starting, or ones that have been shelved, have always been hard to uh, um, name. I think it's I think it's just incredibly difficult to name something. Uh, so Pitbull Keys, um, when I was when I decided to have a separate business for my locksmith business, um, you know, dogs are dogs are very important to me. Um, I we have two pit bulls at home, 
they're amazing dogs, uh, you know, misunderstood. Um, but they're, they're the most loving dogs ever. And so my, uh, <clears throat> my locksmith business, when I decided on, on, uh, Pitbull keys, um, it was for, for, because of the love of the dogs. And we did some rescue work with Pitbull, uh, rescues and, uh, the logo for my company is actually my, my dog, Kimber. Uh, I took a picture of her face and took it to a, a, a designer and had them make the logo out of her face. So, so my, my company logo is actually my dog. That's why I asked that question. I thought that was, that was cool <laughs> because, you know, it is hard when you're naming a company, um, as we've seen with all the pharmaceutical companies, they are slamming multiple syllables of, you know, Greek words together to create something thing because all the all the names are taken you know yeah <laughs> it seems like and so um i just think that's kind of cool because I, I know that you've got that passion for pit bulls as well so it's it, it, and, and kind of like um you know here here's my takeaway on you you're kind of like a pit bull in that um you're tough you you're strong but man, you've got a tender, wonderful heart that um, I just think is beautiful. So, um, you know, I think that there's some commonality there too. Thanks for that. Yeah, Brent, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story and, and being able to dive deep on, on some of these things. It's, uh, it means a lot to us. So where can we, where can we send people to either check you out or connect with you or check out any of the businesses, anything like that? Where would you like people to go? Um, well, hopefully none of, no, nobody listening to this needs my, uh, my repossession services, uh, or, <laughs> or needs, needs to get a hold of us because their car is gone. But I guess if there's some people who maybe work in the, uh, you know, auto finance world or, um, you know, have car dealerships or something like that, uh, both, both, both my companies would be more than happy to help. Um, the, uh, website for my repossession company is just repo NC as in North Carolina. Um, and the uh, locksmith is, is pitbullkeys.com. Um, the uh, locksmith business is, is mobile. So, you know, if, if there's a, anybody that ever just needs, you know, lose their keys or whatever, we can come out and take care of that. Perfect. Uh, everybody listening, check out the, uh, the show notes. You can get those links. So thank you, Brent. We appreciate it. This has been fun. Thank you, guys. Brent, thank you so much. Very much appreciate it.